for your blessings, that you've blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we are just so grateful that, Father, that you sent Jesus to come and take our place as our substitute and die on the cross in our place. And we're just so grateful for that, that he bore our sins in his own body so that we don't have to bear the penalty of that. He bore the penalty of that. He shed that precious, sinless blood that cleanses us from all sin, that causes the new birth to take place as we repent and place our faith in Him. And that blood washes us clean. And We're just so glad that He didn't stay dead, but on the third day He was raised from the dead and came out of the tomb victorious over death, hell, the graves over sin, sickness, and disease. And we're just so grateful that not only our sins are forgiven, but with His stripes we're healed. And, and, uh, and that, that, that provision has been made in every arena, spirit, soul, body, socially, financially, through what Jesus did for us. And we're just so grateful for that. We know that He's seated at the right hand of the Father, just waiting for the Father to say, Go, bring my, bring my church home in the rapture. We're looking forward to that, Father, that day. And we're watching and we're ready. And as things get darker in the world for the righteous that follow you, the path gets brighter and brighter. And though a thousand may fall at our side and ten thousand at our right hand, it will not come nigh us, the plague, or whatever bad is out there, but that we walk through victoriously through the power of the gospel of Jesus. So we we could never thank you enough for all the good you've done for us. And we'll do our best to be a good witness to tell people about Jesus as we live our everyday life. Now we thank you as the word goes forth. It does not return void, but it accomplishes what it's sent forth to do. In the lives of those that'll hear it and believe it, receive it, and consistently act upon it, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people that agreed with that real loud said... Amen. Now listen, Summit Church is a friendly family church. Take a minute, greet somebody, shake their hand or hug their neck or whatever, and then you can be seated. Okay. Glory to God. All right, you can be seated now. And let's open our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah the 52nd chapter and the 14th verse. Isaiah 52 and 14. Isaiah 52 and 14. Um Of course, this being Palm Sunday, you know, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Crowd cried out, Hosanna to the, you know, to the Lord and all of that and blessed him and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and, uh, that next week leading up to his 
passion, you know, and uh, when he's turned over to the, you know, Judas betrayed him, he's turned over to the, uh, to the uh, authorities, religious people of that day, and taken at the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweat, as it were, drops of blood and so on, and, and uh, he was beaten, you know. Uh, not only did he stand trial, but he was beaten for us and on our behalf, taking our place. And, and, uh, and I want to talk to you today about the passion of Jesus Christ, the passion of Jesus Christ, the suffering that he went through, of course, then crucified and on the third day raised from the dead. And we'll talk more obviously next Sunday on Easter about his resurrection. But notice here in Isaiah 52 and 14, the prophet here says, Just as many were astonished at you, speaking of Jesus, so his visage or his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. His visage or his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Uh, actually, I'd like to put that up in the uh, Amplified Bible, if we could, in the Amplified Bible. And notice how the Amplified Bible, for many of the servants of God became, for many, the servant of God, speaking of Jesus, became a what? An object of horror. Many were astonished at him. His face and his whole appearance were marred more than any man's and his form beyond that of the sons of men. But just as many were astonished at him. And, of course, this is making reference not only to his physical appearance through the beatings and whippings and everything, you know. It also makes reference to the spiritual side of things. You need to realize that all of the sins of all mankind were laid upon him. And not only that, all the sickness and disease laid upon him. Think about that. And this verse makes reference not only to the natural side, it makes reference to the spiritual side of things. Now the spiritual side of, of, of his suffering oftentimes gets overlooked. And I think we've done a, a, a decent job over the last years covering the spiritual side of what went on you know, with the sins being laid upon Jesus and him becoming sin for us. who knew, you know, He knew no sin, he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us that. We, we've, we've talked to you about the spiritual side, just to make you aware of the spiritual side of his suffering. You know, being cut off from the Father for three days and three nights. You know, that, I believe that's ultimately why he was sweating, as it were, drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, being cut off. Remember, the book of Daniel said that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. So we've talked to you about the the spiritual side of things, but uh, today we want to center in on the physical side of things uh, because there was a physical side as well. And uh, uh, talking to you then, as I said, about the passion of the Christ. Now, from the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was in agony and, as we said, sweat drops of blood, Jesus was then taken to the Jewish religious leaders. And notice what happened to him. We're going to just highlight the physical suffering that he went through, starting in John 18, 22. Let's go there. New King James Version is what, what we use. 
Occasionally we reference another version like we just did in the Amplified Bible. But John 18.22, I want to highlight for you his physical suffering here today. John 18.22, notice this, uh, when he's before the religious leaders, you know. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. Struck him with the palm of his hand. Now, notice in Luke 22, verse 63. Let's turn over there because now he goes before another group of religious leaders. Notice this. Luke 22:63. Now, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, They struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Then from there he goes to Pilate. Pilate, of course, sends him to Herod. Herod puts him in in, in some outlandish outfit, sends him back to Pilate. And notice in Matthew 27, verse 26... Of course, Pilate then in the process of time, you know, Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus, but the crowd was egging him on to do so. Pilate washes his hands, if you will, remember that, and released unto the crowd Barabbas. As the crowd cried out, crucify him, crucify him, you know, concerning Jesus. But notice here in Matthew twenty-seven twenty-six, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to them, And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now in in that one word, scourged, you could probably teach, I could probably teach for hours on what all happened in that scourging. They beat him immersively. Immersively. Um, Using... Whips, uh, you know, Roman whips and whatnot. We could get in and study all of that with, you know, they had like pieces of bone or metal or whatever at the end of the whips. And, and actually, they, they ripped his back open. I mean, not just a few stripes. You know, there's stripes there, right? But I mean, they literally, there were stripes there. because by his stripes were healed, but they literally ripped his back open. That one word, scourge, when you study the Roman scourging. A horrible, horrible thing. Now, he'd already been beaten, as we'd seen. But now they've scourged him, beat him immersively. He delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor, verse 27, took Jesus into the praetorium. And notice this, gathered the whole garrison around him. Think about that. All these soldiers gather and encircle Jesus. And they stripped him, stripped him of his clothes, put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, you need to realize those thorns were not just little bitty thorns. They were, they were, thorn, I mean, they were long. And it was a cap. It wasn't just a wreath like you would think, a, you know, that went around. It was a cap, like a hat. 
and they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him or they spit on him and they took the reed, you know, this, this stick or club, if you will, and struck him on the head. You got to remember, all this time we had that we had all, all we had that coming. But he, Jesus, stepped in as our substitute. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. And of course, they would they would they would put that beam upon the back, and the victims of crucifixion would carry that beam, you know to their crucifixion. Notice Isaiah 50 verse 6 because this sometimes gets mentioned but it rarely gets looked up. So let's look up Isaiah 50 verse 6 to see what else he went through. Isaiah 50 verse 6, he says that the prophet speaking here, the Holy Ghost through the prophet speaking and says, I gave my back to those who struck me. And my cheeks to those who what? Who plucked out my beard. Did Jesus have a beard? And they plucked it out. Pulled his beard out. Think about that. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So they plucked his beard. And and then of course... As we study what happened as he's being led to be crucified, he evidently fell under the, that beam and couldn't, because of the beatings that he had underwent, couldn't go any further. And Simon of Cyrene uh, took the cross and carried it the rest of the way. Notice Matthew 27, 32. Matthew 27, 32. Matthew 27, 32. So as they came out, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, it's there, of course, that they crucified Jesus. He hung on the cross for six hours, going on the cross at nine in the morning and dying at three o'clock in the afternoon. And then in John 19.31, let's go there. John 19.31. We're looking at his physical suffering here this morning. John 19.31. Therefore, because it was a preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken. Now, it's important that you remember that, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other, because remember Jesus was crucified between those two uh, criminals, you know. One of them repented, one of them didn't. But in verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one, now remember, they didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. 
And immediately blood and water came out. Now remember that. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. And then in Matthew 27, verse 57, notice this, Matthew 27, verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given him. When Joseph had taken the body... He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now remember that. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in the new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And of course, you know, a guard was set over that tomb and all of that. But notice he wrapped Jesus' body in a clean linen cloth, placed it in the tomb. Now, this cloth is known as the Shroud of Turin. Has anybody ever heard of the Shroud of Turin? Anybody ever heard of that? And some people believe that that shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus. Some believe it's the burial cloth of Jesus. Some say that it isn't. Well, let me tell you this. Whether it is or whether it isn't doesn't change the truth of the Word of God. So whether that cloth is real or whether it's not, it really, in the end, doesn't make any difference. Because the Bible said he was wrapped in a cloth, and we know the Bible says on the third day he was raised from the dead. Right? So whether that cloth is authentic or not, whether it's real or not, whether it's really his burial cloth or not, it it doesn't affect my faith one way or the other. I mean, really, I'm still going to believe. You understand that? But I think this cloth is interesting to look at. And I've, sa- I've mentioned it over the years, but I want to take as I, in the remainder of this message, I'd like to talk to you about this burial cloth of Jesus because I, I tend to believe it is the burial cloth of Jesus. Now, whether it is or it isn't, if you, if you don't think it is, guess what? That's fine. You could think it's not. I could think it is. And we could still, if we're believing on Jesus, we're still saved and going to heaven. Is that right? But I think it's interesting, and I want to say some things to you about this Shroud of Turin. Uh, Ever since I first heard about it years ago, it just seemed good to me that it was the burial cloth of Jesus before I even knew any of the details about it. But again, whether it is or whether it isn't, you know, but I think it's interesting. And uh, I'd like to put that picture, well, if they want to put that picture up there of the, uh, uh, this is a picture, you know, that, that... we have here, you know, that someone uh, put together of uh, or painted, you know, and it shows how they laid Jesus in the cloth. Notice it went from his feet up around his head back to his feet. You see that? And so there's front and his, his back, his front side and his back side wrapped, you know. You see that up there on the screen? And um, Mark Antonacci is actually, Mark, raise your hand real high. He actually is one of the world's leading experts on the Shroud of Turin, And he's a member here 
of our church. He's written a book and he's a book or two on it and very knowledgeable. And so what I'm going to share with you now comes from his work. And uh, if, if you'd like, after the service, get with him if you want. Find out more about what he has done if, if you're so led. And help support his efforts concerning the Shroud if you feel led to do so. But let me just read some of what Mark gave me. And I've kind of paraphrased it and put it in my own words. So if he stands up and says, I did not say that, then... <laughs> but I took what he said and kind of paraphrased it. But I think you'll find this interesting about the Shroud. Because really, it, it, it shows, it, you know, remember, what, what, what did we talk about last Wednesday night? We add to our faith knowledge, right? So in other words, I'm not going to take a bunch of scientific evidence and then conclude that God exists. No, I believe God exists without the scientific See, but then what I do is I take my faith, I already believe in God, but now I'm going to add to it knowledge and really good science, all it does is back up the word of God. You okay? So now just listen to this. Modern science, just listen, I think you'll find this interesting. Modern science did not begin its investigation of the shroud until the turn of the 20th century, just after the first photographs of the shroud were taken. Five scientists, headed by an agnostic and one of the most prominent scientists of his day, presented the group's findings before the French Academy of Science, the foremost body of science of that day. These scientists found that the images and wounds on the shroud were those of a dead human male. They further found the body image and blood marks could not have been painted which has been the most popular misconception of the shroud throughout its history. Because there's an image left on the shroud. And critics have said, well, somebody came in there and, you know, painted that on there. And that, that's just, as I've studied it out, it's just, it's not possible. I mean, it, it, not with this shroud. They found that the images and the blood marks on the shroud involved the direct, and indirect contact between the cloth and the body. These scientists even identified the body as that of Jesus Christ and declared the shroud was his burial garment. Subsequent medical and scientific evidence would confirm all of these findings. Now, a thorough examination of the cloth would not occur until 1978 when a group of scientists called the Shroud of Turin Research Project, consisting of scientists from some of the most prestigious institutions in the world, applied a comprehensive range of sophisticated, non-destructive tests to the cloth and to various samples removed from it. These samples were brought back for further study at laboratories throughout the world a study that continues to, to this day. These scientists, some 75 years later, were able to take things one step further. They found that the shroud's features literally defied the laws of chemistry and physics. All of the results derived from the shroud indicate that it is Jesus' burial cloth, except... It's 1988 radiocarbon dating, which claimed that it uh, derived from the Middle Ages. This carbon dating, however, this carbon dating result has been intelligibly 
challenged. And Mark could tell you more on that, but I'll just leave it at that. I believe that carbon dating dating thing is faulty. Now, one thing that I found interesting as I've studied this is that the places in which historians contend that Jesus' body could have been buried, either the Holy Sepulchre or the Garden Tomb, are both located in the same rock shelf. Now, microscopic particles of limestone have been found on the shroud which match this rock shelf identically, but match no other uh, rock shelf in all of Israel. So what that tells me is that this, this cloth was in and could have only been in where Jesus was buried. Now let's review some of the other scientific and medical findings derived from the shroud. The image on the shroud could not have been an artist's rendering as brush strokes are not found. Scientists can't find brush strokes that the artist would have made. When the shroud was photographed, it was realized that its body image was actually a negative. Now, actually, we've got a picture of that up there. And uh, let's see, I think that, uh, I don't know if we've got it, but uh, did, did we get it there? Yeah, on the left side would be the front, and on the right side would be the back. Could that be a picture, a negative, actually? So when you take a picture of the shroud, look at its negative, that's what you get. Could that be a negative uh, of, of the Lord Jesus? Could be, could be, could be, could be. Now, if it isn't, are we still saved by faith in Jesus? Well, certainly we are. But I find this interesting. A negative appears that gives us that. Now, scientists discovered that a true three-dimensional image, listen to this, a true three-dimensional image is enclosed on the two-dimensional cloth. This had never been seen before in all of history. Well, that sounds like something miraculous that God would do. See, I actually believe I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm kind of into next Sunday's message. But I believe when Jesus was raised from the dead that the power of God scorched that image right on that. (laughs) That's a powerful thing. God showed his mighty power in Jesus' resurrection. But this true three-dimensional image encoded on two-dimensional cloth... This had never been seen before in all of history. This was, and this was discovered by using the kinds of computer imaging technology developed by NASA. Now, the blood stains consist of real human blood, not an artist's rendering. The blood stains vary in depth, size, shape, and intensity, as you get in and study the cloth out, as these scientists have done. The man's wounds were inflicted in different ways with different instruments and at different times. Well, didn't we just read that in the Bible? That Jesus' wounds were inflicted in different ways with different instruments at different times. That's what scientists have shown in this cloth. See, we started with the Bible, didn't we? And now, see, we didn't start with it. We started with the Bible, right? But that backs up what the Bible is saying. Not that the Bible needs that to back it up, but good science will back up the Bible. 
Now, for example, there's more than 100 scourge marks found throughout the body from the shoulders to the feet, generally running parallel and diagonal across the body. All of these scourge marks match in size and shape to excavated samples of the Romans' whipping tools. Think about that. When, they stu- when scientists studied this, this cloth and the, the, the image there, all of the, the wounds are consistent with the Romans' whipping tools. Every scourge mark, when examined under a microscope, is as it should be. Interesting. More than a dozen wounds can be seen on the top, middle, and sides of the front of the man's head. Circling the top, middle, and back of the head were approximately 20 more wounds. All of these wounds are consistent with what a bundle of sharp pointed objects like a crown of thorns sitting over the entire head would produce. Remember, it was a cap of thorns. In ancient times, in the East, crowns consisted of full caps that fit over the entire head like this man appears to have worn. Not a small wreath-like, which is a wreath that's so often depicted. Mocking and tormenting of crucifixion victims by the Roman military guard was also common. Along with the crown of thorns, this man has also been beaten about the head as indicated by the bruises, cuts, and swelling on his face, eyes, and cheeks. Then we read that in the Bible. Parallel blood flows, now listen to this, parallel blood flows can be seen on the man's forearms. If you were to get in there and study it out like the scientists have done, parallel blood flows can be seen on the man's forearms, but the blood runs from the wrists to the elbows. This direction is quite consistent with the outstretched and suspended position of a crucifixion victim. Moreover, the blood flows on each forearm are approximately 10 degrees apart. When a crucifixion victim hung on a cross, he was unable, he was unable to breathe because he could not exhale. In order to do so, and with great pain, he would have to pull himself up with his wrists and push himself up with his feet. This would cause his shoulders to raise and alter the horizontal axis of his arm approximately 10 degrees, which is what that shows of the the blood running. And think about that. To exhale, you'd have to just think about Jesus having to pull and push himself up to exhale. That was a horrible six hours he spent on that cross. In order to prevent breathing and to hasten death, Roman executioners were known to break the victim's legs. Well, can you see now why they would break the legs so they couldn't push themselves up and exhale and they'd die more quickly? However, this man, now listen to this, this man in in this picture here, this negative, this man's legs were not broken, nor was it necessary to break them, for he was already dead when he received a post-mortem or after-death wound in the side. We read about that. They put that spear in Jesus' side after he was dead. What came out? Blood and? 
So this man's legs in this, this negative here were not broken, nor was it necessary, for he was already dead when he received a post-mortem or after-death wound in the side. This wound lacks any... Now listen to this. This wound in the side lacks any swelling, and its blood oozed out by gravity, not propelled by a heart beating. Which would indicate he's already dead. The size and shape of this post-mortem wound matches that of the Roman lancia an instrument that was used by the foot soldiers of the Roman militia, the group from which executioners were recruited. So the, on this right here, the wound in the side matches what, it, it, what the Romans used. We read about that in the Bible. Computer technology even shows the line where the lancia entered the chest between the fifth and sixth ribs, thereby piercing the right oracle, 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 which fills with blood on death. Moreover, this stain, now listen to this, this stain not only consists of blood, I'm talking on this right here, when they examine it, it not only consists of blood, but also a clear watery fluid from the chest cavity. What did the Bible say came out? Water, blood and water. Interesting, isn't it? The man, listen to this, the, man, the man's nail wounds are clearly in the wrists. Unlike the nearly unanimous portrayals in the palms. Because critics have argued over the years, well, yeah, but this, it's in the wrist area where, they, where that shows that he was nailed to the cross, not in the palms. Listen to this. The man's nail wounds are clearly in the wrists, unlike the nearly unanimous portrayals in the palms. This too is quite accurate, for if the nails had been in the palms, they would have ripped through the hand when the victim was suspended. Okay? Critics of the shroud contended that Jesus could not have been nailed at this location, since the wrist contains numerous small bones, and the Old Testament prophesied that not a bone would be broken on the Messiah. And that's true. The Bible prophesied that. However, nails driven into cadavers, you know what a cadaver is, is you know, a, a, cor- a dead body. When they did experiments, nails driven into cadavers at the same location depicted on the shroud... Can you see that in his hand there? Can you see? You see? Do you see? I should have brought my pointer out here, but if you look at the guy's, your right, I guess it would be his left. You see, there's a mark right there in the wrist. Do you see that? How many sees that? Okay, you see that. Well, now let me continue reading here. Critics of the shroud contend that Jesus could not have been nailed at this location since the wrist contains numerous small bones and the Old Testament prophesied that not a bone would be broken on the Messiah. However, nails driven into cadavers at the same location depicted on the shroud actually separate and become surrounded by four small bones which provide the necessary support for a suspended victim. Think about that. It goes in, there's not, not a bone is broken, but four small bones, I guess they like move apart and surround and around the nail. Nail wounds in the wrist do correspond with the nail 
location found on on the only known excavated remains of a crucifixion victim who also appears to have been Jewish and crucified in Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in the first century. So they, they found someone else who had been crucified at the same time roughly when Jesus had been crucified, the only one they'd been able to find and at the hands of the Romans, and he was nailed through the wrist. Now, I did some study on this years ago because I thought, well, you know, this, this, that, clearly that's not in, that's not, that is not in the palm of, of the hand, it's in the wrist area. And clearly, Thomas said, unless I can put my, you know, fingers into what? His, his hands and his side. And then Jesus said, when he appeared to, to Thomas later, remember? When he appeared to the, the, tw- uh, the eleven later, Thomas there, he said, reach hither thy finger and put in my hands and in, into my side. Remember that? So that kind of troubled me. I, I have to be honest with you. But I, I did some study. I did some study on it years ago myself. And I found out that the area where this wrist area is still considered part of the hand. So it's totally consistent with Scripture. Now let me say this to you. Another interesting phenomenon, now listen to this, occurs when a nail is driven into the wrist at the location depicted on a shroud. The nail also strikes the median nerve, causing the thumb to contract into the palm. If one observes, the thumbs are not visible on the man in the shroud for this reason. This may be a unique point of authenticity that no forger would have ever depicted. One can search the thousands of crucifixion paintings, carvings and statues throughout history, and while he may find a few were the nail, uh, a few were uh, the nails, a few where the nails are depicted in the heel or wrist region of Jesus, none of them have ever depicted the wounds in the wrist with the thumbs absent or contracted into the palms. That's because when you get nailed in that area, your thumbs will come in and you don't see the thumbs on this guy. Which actually, to me, makes, makes it, you know, a forger wouldn't have thought of that. Do you get that? Two broad, raw areas, if you got in and looked at this more closely, and in, in, in Mark's books and things, you can, you can get those and look and see the, the pictures. But two broad, raw areas are visible across both shoulder blades that are consistent with the ancient practice of making crucifixion victims carry their own cross beams to the place of crucifixion. These beams were quite heavy, 80 to 100 pounds, and their weight could easily cause the victim to fall, especially if he'd already been whipped and beaten. Since the scourge marks are somewhat different in, in this area, it appears the scourging uh, preceded the shoulder abrasions. Isn't that interesting? That the scourging preceded the shoulder abrasions. Well, they whipped him before they, and scourged him before they put the beam on him to take him to Calvary. The shroud does, uh, the shroud does contain evidence of a fall or fall since scratches and cuts are found on the man's knees, legs and nose, and dirt is found on his feet and nose. Interesting. Now listen to this. Like the body images, the blood marks on the shroud are unique and no other blood stains like these are known to history. All the wounds on the man in the shroud, their initiating events and even their sequence are identical to those of Jesus. 
If all of this is not enough, modern technology supports the imaging of a Pontius Pilate coin over the right eye of the man in the shroud that matches Jewish burial customs of that time period. They put the coin on the whole eye shut. And then finally, the man in the shroud left the cloth within, had to leave it within three days, for there are no decomposition stains present. The man in the shroud left the cloth within three days, for there are no composition stains present. Some scholars say two to three days. But we know Jesus was raised on the... Think, of, do you think about that. When, they, when good science studies this, the man in the shroud left the cloth within three days, for there are no decomposition stains present. See, the Bible says that he didn't see corruption, did he? His body didn't decay because he was resurrected. Like the more than 100 scourge marks scattered throughout the body, all of the blood marks reveal that they had intimate contact with the cloth. Yet if the cloth, now listen to this, yet if the cloth had been removed by any human or mechanical means, it would have broken or smeared some of some or most of all of these bloodstains. However, not one is broken or smeared, indicating that the body not only left the cloth, but did so by a non-human or miraculous manner. Stand with me if you would. My goodness. Don't start the altar music just yet, but let's just think about this. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome, don't you think? How many of you think that's pretty awesome? I mean, if that is the burial cloth of Jesus, if it is, I believe it is, but it, it might not be. But, but I believe it is. If it is, boy, it sure backs that Bible up. And I just shared just, I just shared with you this morning. I didn't get into all the in-depth stuff that Mark gets into in all his study. I just gave you kind of the, the, the highlights. Some of that stuff is so deep, I, you know, it's hard for me to, to, to follow. But I tell you what, this right here is very interesting. Very, how many finds it interesting? Now, I'm not asking you to believe that that shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus. But what I am asking you to do is to believe this book, this Bible. But like I said, if that is the burial cloth, and I I think it is, boy, it sure backs the Bible up. Wow. Not that the Bible needs to be backed up, but what have we said? Good science will what? Back up the Bible. Some good forensic... You didn't think you were going to get a forensic class this morning, did you? You just never know what might happen when you come to Summit Church. Amen? How many of you enjoyed this today? Interesting, interesting, interesting. Praise God. Praise God. So again, whether that's the burial cloth of Jesus or not, and what did you think about the, uh, what did you think about the, uh, I thought that wrist, that wrist thing was interesting. What did you think about the, uh, the body had to leave, the body left within three days? I mean, well, what happened? There was a resurrection took place. Amen. So, let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm not asking you to believe the forensic stuff here today. You can if you like. But what I am asking you to believe is to believe the Bible. Praise God. 
with heads bowed and eyes closed as they turn that music on now, praise God. Let's just think about the things we've learned today. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jesus of this Bible, I'm asking you to do that today. When you repent of your sins, what does that mean? Just say, Lord, I I know I've I've sinned, I've missed it, and I'm tired of living this way, this sinful lifestyle. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm going to serve you. Well, I tell you, when you do that, and then call on the name of Jesus, believing in Him, the Bible says that, that, that the life of God will come into you, and you'll get born again. You'll become the very righteousness of God. You'll have the power of God that makes you victorious to live this life. Not only that, one day you'll miss hell and make heaven. So if you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, before you leave here today, there'll be some men and women standing up here in the front. And uh, praise God. Let's just come right on ahead and stand. Praise God. And, and, and if you need to receive Jesus, you come up after this, after we dismiss. And these, these folks, these good people will pray with you and lead you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you've accepted Christ at one time and you've kind of fallen away from Him and you'd like to get back right with Him again, maybe you know you're not walking with Him as you should. Hey, you can come up and pray with these people and I tell you, Jesus, He won't turn you away. He'll be glad that you got back right with Him this morning. If you need healing in your body, if you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit for the evidence of speaking in other tongues, or just you have some prayer need, whatever it may be, you come forward and these dear people will pray with you and help you be a blessing to you well let me lead you in a good confession say thank you God for sending Jesus Jesus so glad you came and that you died on the cross you endured those beatings you shed your blood and that on the third day you were raised from the dead and I give you honor and praise and glory I could never thank you enough. And I'm going to leave here and tell somebody about your goodness. Now let's just raise our voice and worship Him just for a moment. We thank you and bless you, Lord. We bless you. This is a church that raises our voices and praises the Lord. Hallelujah. We bless you and praise you. We glorify you. We give you honor and praise and blessing. There's none like you. We thank you for your goodness and mercy and presence in this house of God here today. Glory to God. Well, greet a couple people. Love on them. You're dismissed. We'll see you next time. God bless you.